Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. It is this first uh, weekend in September of 2023. And it was what I did yesterday is I watched three football games, okay? The first one was pretty exciting. It was uh, the Colorado Buffaloes played TCU. And since I'm not a big TCU fan, right? I was extremely excited about that game. Then I watched the Broncos have a wake-up call at, uh, with UW. And then I watched K-State roll like a bowling ball through uh, uh, that team. So it was a lot of fun yesterday watching uh, three football games because, man, life is good, but football is better. It's just, wow, just awesome. Love it. Uh, we have a Roundup Sunday coming. Our church is designed to help you connect with Christ first, and then we want you to connect to community. And so Roundup is when our church tries to invite, you know, the whole church comes out, and then we try to invite our community to come and participate and meet people so that they can start their journey with Jesus. And so, you know, throughout uh, the Treasure Valley, there's different churches that have different reputations. You have, you know, one church has a, is like a dress-up church, you know, you dress up to go, and other churches, you know, mega casual church and another church might uh, have uh, a special architecture. You know, our reputation is uh, the steak church. So I, I can live with that, you know. We got steak. We're here for you. But it's a great invite. Bring friends. Now, in order to do this, though, a lot of people within our church uh, come together and serve. So uh, we'd love for you to come and serve, uh, be a participate. Sometimes the best way to meet other people is to serve with them. And you can Sign up right there uh, by scanning that QR code. If you're watching online, you can scan it and join. If uh, you're watching, you're in Reno or Scottsdale or wherever you're at, uh, jump on a plane next Sunday and come join us. You will not be disappointed. Uh, if you're on campus and you want to go out and sign up on a clipboard, do that. Uh, we need people who can set up and tear down. We need people who can uh, do a little grilling. And also we need some people with sides. So if you have a killer potato salad or pasta salad recipe, uh, make 14 pounds of it and bring it on down. So yeah, people will love it. So today we're finishing our series, The Moral of the Story, which is a study of the parables of Jesus. And the most unique thing about the parables of Jesus is they are all designed to help us understand the kingdom of God. How, are, how do we become a part of the kingdom of God? What are the values of the kingdom of God? What is it like to live in the kingdom of God, even while you are here on earth in the kingdom of this world is kind of alongside it? How does all this work? The parables over the last 15 weeks have really helped us understand that. And today we're going to do the last parable in, uh, called the parable of the talents. It's in Matthew chapter 25. And these are three parables that Matthew recorded that Jesus taught right before he was crucified. And it was about the second coming. And it's about how you be, are prepared and how we live right now for our uh, day when Jesus comes back and claims his bride, the church, and then his kingdom is established in permanence, right? It's an eternal kingdom, a kingdom without beginning or end. And so we're going to study these uh these last three parables, the last three weeks, parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the sheep and the goats, and today, the parable of the talents. So I want to jump right in and because this parable is really interesting. It's a very popular parable to teach. But at the end, Jesus throws this massive curveball. And I've just been trying, I mean, 
I've been studying this for years, and I'm just trying to reconcile some things. And uh, I hope that you will help me do that. Because one of the things about Foothills is we're here to uh, learn how to think for ourselves, right? So that our faith grows. So let's jump in. Let's read this parable. And I'll give you a little commentary as we go uh, to help you understand it. Because the main thing in understanding a parable is we have to read it as if we were Jewish people in the first century. Okay, that way we get the real flavor of how this hit them when Jesus told it. So what did the disciples think? Well, how did they live? What did they care about? And, and how did this hit them when they uh, heard Jesus tell this parable? Again, it will. So this verse 14 is a reference to verse 1 of chapter 25, where it says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. So he says here, again... This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man goes on a journey. He calls his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five talents. Uh, your translation or up here it says uh, bag of gold, right? He says to one he gave five bags of gold or five talents. To another two talents or two bags of gold and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So the first thing we see is that a talent or a bag of gold is equal to about 20 years of labor. So it's somewhere between, you know, I don't know, one and a half million to two million dollars. So the first guy got about $10 million in today's money. The second guy, somewhere around three to four million and the last guy got, you know, one and a half to two million dollars. So what we see are some significant amounts that this master gave to his servants. Servants were bounded employees. And uh, some translations use the word slave. But modern translations tend to not use that word because most people in think of chattel slavery. And that was not what this was. This was uh, mosaic bounded servanthood, which was totally different. And what this master did was common. He had these bonded servants to him, uh, contracted employees, and he gives it to him and he goes on a journey, a really long journey. What's interesting is he gives no instruction. He gives no expectations. Jesus says, this guy takes massive amounts of money, gives it to his servants and leaves. Okay. So verse 16, the man who had received five bags or five talents went at once, put the money to work and gave five bags more, gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, what's interesting is when the disciples heard this, Jewish people, they would say something is that the first two did exactly what they would have done. And why is that? Well, because in Mosaic law, and then you can read rabbinical teaching on it, they had a very specific process of what you were supposed to do with your money. And today it's called the five jar method. And it's deep, steeped in rabbinical teaching ever since this, but initially codified in Mosaic Law. And this is basically how it worked, is that 
The first jar is your tithe jar. So when you receive, you put 10% in this jar and it goes to the temple. Then what happens is you have a second jar, you put 10% in that and that goes to charity. In Hebrew, they called it, it's TZ, so Zedekah. Basically what it means is not a gift to somebody in need. They saw Zedekah was an obligation that you had to help. So it's kind of a different flavor to it. And then the third jar, you're supposed to put 10% in for savings. And this is just savings, right? Then you add the fourth jar, which was called 50%, you put in there, and that was for what you lived on. That's what you bought food with and clothing with, you know, how you did, you ran your business, whatever it is you had to do, you lived only off of 50% of what you brought in. Now, for all of you math people out there, then that leaves 20%. What were you supposed to do with that? You were supposed to invest that in your community. You're supposed to invest it in business. And the main reason why you did that is because it creates an economy, not only for you, but also for the people around you. What's fascinating is economic ties pull communities together. It pulls people together. And I was reading this little report that I thought was so interesting. It was a little documentary on how Nutella is made. How many of you like Nutella, right? I mean, Nutella is, is awesome, you know, but if you eat too much of it, you'll die an early death, let me tell you, because it's heart-stopping stuff. Uh, so what was really interesting is they, they, they followed how they make Nutella. And what's interesting is the way they make it, all the ingredients come from countries that don't get along with each other. Isn't that interesting? So politically, they can't get along with each other, but guess what? They all can get along to make Nutella. And I mean, if you go to Europe, everybody's eating Nutella. You know what I'm saying? If you ask for a chocolate thing, you're going to get Nutella. And so it's really interesting that way is that economics have a tendency to pull community together, but particularly powerful in the Jewish community. And that is often why Jewish communities, regardless of under what political uh, umbrella they lived or what country or nation they lived in, they often become some of the wealthiest subgroups of those nations. Why? because they live according to the five jar method. So they, you know, the apostles are sitting there, they hear this and they go, well, yeah, th these guys did exactly what they were supposed to do. Now let's keep going on verse 18. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So the third servant acted out of character for a Jewish person. So I find that really interesting. The first two acted in character and the third person acted out of character. Let's read verse 19, see what happens. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents or five bags of gold brought another five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's joy or happiness. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. Now his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came 
And this is where things get really interesting, okay? Is you see, what did the guy do who was an outlier? Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, I envision that at this point, the disciples listening to Jesus tell this story chuckle. They chuckle a little bit because what he did was such an out of character thing for a Jewish person to do in the first century that the disciples will kind of chuckle and go, you know, so he digs it up and gives it back. You know, that's kind of silly. And what the servant does is basically two things. Number one, he tells the master what he did. I buried your money. Here's yours. And then he told the master why he did it. He said, my motivation was I was afraid. So I find that really interesting. I was afraid. So I hid it. So he tells him what he did and he tells him why he did it. Okay. Now, verse 26 is where Jesus says the master, uh, Jesus is talking about the master, his response. The master replies, you are a wicked, worthless servant. Some translate the word lazy, but in the original Greek, the word means of no value. Okay, so you have no value. You, he, then he says something really interesting. The next phrase, and I want you to notice, it has a question mark on it, okay? Now, this is kind of an important deal. He goes, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So there's two ways that this can be taken. One is, well, obviously you've just admitted that you know it's that way, or it's taken this way. So you assume that I'm that way. You just assume that. So it, can, it has both flavors to it, which is a little interesting in just a moment. We'll, we'll show why. He goes, verse 27, well, then you should have just put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So, and then this is what happens. Take the bag of gold away from him. Now, I find this really interesting. I want you to have this image in your head. The servant has the bag that he dug up and he says, here is your bag of gold but he doesn't give it back to the master. It's still in his hand. And so the master says, take it away from him and give it to the guy with 10. Isn't that interesting? So the master says, I'm taking it away from you because you have no value. You are worthless. And this is what I think is the most pertinent question in understanding this parable. Why did the servant lose his value? What was it exactly that caused him to become 
worthless. Well, if you were Jewish, you would say to yourself, well, it's because he's not acting like a Jew. He's not very Jewishy. Is that a word, Jewishy? I'm not sure. But he's not acting very Jewish at all. That's why. Okay? So, in essence, what the disciples would hear is, well, the first two acted like Jews, and the third one acted out of character. But the question is, is why did he lose his value? Is it because of what he did, right? Is it the decision he made to do what he did? Or is it the nature, his heart, that drove him to make the decision he made to do what he did. Now, why is that such a pertinent question? Well, because verse 29 and verse 30 throw a massive curveball at all this, right? If we were just in the story here, we could go and say, this is a story of how you've been given a gift by God. You need to go out and make some effort according to your ability, right? You just need to be, you don't have to be the winner. You don't have to be the loser. You just have to go out and try. That's kind of the moral of the story. But Jesus didn't tell parables to make a moral point. He told parables to do what? Teach us the essence of the kingdom of God. And this is where it gets wild. Because listen to what Jesus says. Verse 29. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Okay, so whoever has what? And what will they get more of? Listen to this. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness... Weeping and gnashing of teeth means it's a bad place. You don't want to be there. Okay, so why did the servant become worthless? Why what he had is taken away from him and then ultimate judgment, he is thrown out into the place of darkness. That is what I would like to know. Because this is left... This is a nice moral story you tell your middle schooler on do your best, you know, go out and do your best to we're talking about living in the kingdom of God, salvation, having it taken away and then sent to hell. I mean, Jesus takes us to a whole new level. What does he mean? What does the talent in verse 29 and 30, actually represent? We have to answer that question because that tells you and me how in the world we're supposed to apply this parable. Are you tracking with me here? Are you thoroughly confused? Because I'll tell you what, the more I dig into this over the years, the more confused I got, okay? The final statement of Jesus is what drives a person to consider, what does this parable mean for me? It really personalizes it for you because you're asking yourself, what gave the 
first two servants value where they got the well done, good and faithful servant and the third one lost their value. Now, in order, I think, for us to answer this question, we have to dig into a little bit of, of how human nature works. In other words, how it is that we do what we do, why we do what we do, and motivates the decision behind or the heart behind why we do what we do. So uh, I came up with a highly complex graphic here, right? You've got a head and a heart, right? And then you've got action, this stick figure guy running. I thought, okay, that, that stick figure guy uh, is a great action. So, so here's what's really interesting is what we know, you know, with assurity is that our actions are often driven by our decisions, right? What we decide drives our actions, okay? But guess what? Nobody makes all their decisions out of pure logic. Spock is a character in a TV show and movie. He doesn't exist in real life, okay? No one is pure logic. There's always something behind what you think that drives your decisions on what you do, and that is your heart. I think a way that it works is like this, is that... Um, you know, I know in my head, right, that I need to eat better so that my cholesterol hits some arbitrary number that my doctor has said is really healthy. Now, do I know that that's healthy? No, but there's a whole lot of science behind it. So I kind of accept that, you know, got to get my cholesterol down. And so my doctor says, I'm going to give you a fact. And that's going to be in your decision-making process. And you know what that is? And that is, is that donuts are really bad for your cholesterol. Okay? I'm like, all right. So I'm walking down the street, you know, and Guru Donuts has a little kiosk at the market or family thing. And what are they doing? Are they just bringing donuts from the store? No, they're baking them right there. So that odor wafts through the, you know, and I'm walking by and I'm just going, oh my goodness. And then something really interesting happens. This becomes dependent solely on what I call the ping-ponging between my head and my heart, right? That starts to happen like crazy. My head says, your doctor said that donuts are bad for you cholesterol, but my heart goes, but they're so good. And what is life if, you know, you can eat kale and rabbit food and live till you're 100 when everything hurts? Or Paul says it's much better to go and be with the Lord, so why not have a donut now and then, right? So what am I doing? My head is taking different facts, but what's really motivating and interpreting the facts in my head? It's my heart. This is why Jesus always starts with salvation. You'll never be able to do this 
until this changes. This can't change until that is brought from death to life. Jesus always starts with salvation. Why? Because this is a change of your nature. When this has been corrupted by sin and death, it is a dead nature. Paul said, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, when you come to Christ, when we are in Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, behold, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. In Ephesians, Paul describes it this way. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we've been made alive with Christ. Probably the most specific way it was ever said is Jesus talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus. And he says, you must be born again. He goes, what in the world are you talking about? You must have your nature brought from death to life. Jesus always starts with your heart. And the heart is designed, the new heart is designed to live in the kingdom of God. It's not designed to live on its own. The new creation, the new you, the new nature is designed to thrive and live in one place. If you, you know, if you're some type of animal and then suddenly you're changed into a fish, do you want to flop around on land or do you want to live in the water, which you were designed for? Your new nature that comes from God is designed to live in the kingdom of God. So when we take that and we start thinking about it here, we go, okay, so digging the hole, the guy went out and dug the hole and put the gold in it, right? Put the bag in there. That's not why he became worthless. Oh, well, it was the decision. You're a hard man. This is what, you know, this is your, you're a hard man. You want what's yours. I'm not going to mess with it. So I'm going to hide it, right? So it was a decision he made, right? That's why he was worthless. So he made a decision. He's a hard man. I'm going to hide it. Dig a hole, hide it. Is it that? No. Is it this? I don't think so. I think what it is, is it was his heart. Because what did he say? He said, I was afraid. Now, when you're afraid here, when you're really afraid here, this rationalizes whatever you want to do. Every single time. All you got to do is if you're afraid, right? I'm not feeling so good. I'm not so, I'm not so feeling so good. And I, I told my, my buddy, you know, and he said, well, you know, I have a friend, you know, who has a, you know, he had a massive, uh, you know, form of cancer and ALS and myelopta optica and all this other kind of stuff going on, you know, and he, he was gone in three weeks. And so, so all of a sudden you're kind of scared because you don't know what that means. So what is the first thing that you do? Do you go see your doctor? No. 
What do you do? You Google it. You Google it. And after you Google it, what are you convinced? You have 42 things that are going to kill you in three weeks. Now you got to go see your doctor. And you, you go see your doctor, your doctor goes, you don't have any of that stuff. What is it? It's an allergy for crying out loud. Take some Claritin. But you see, this is what happens is, is that when our heart is fearful, our brain rationalizes whatever our nature is driving us to do. That is something I find really interesting about this parable. Because they were given something and it was their nature that drove them to think like they thought, which drove them to take the actions that they took. So in the same way, what if we have to look at this parable differently? So let's go through and kind of just take some basic truths that we can apply to our lives right now. Number one is that this parable specifically says that you have been given a gift. It is unique to you, and that's what makes you special, right? It's not what you do, and it's not necessarily the decisions you make that makes you special. It's who you are in Christ that makes you special. You see, that you've been redeemed by God, adopted into his family, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that you've been adopted that. But what's interesting is that your new nature influences the decisions you make and the decisions you make are revealed in the actions you take. So you see how that works? Is I, It's that what I am valued on is who I am in Christ, but it's what I do here that tells me the true nature of my nature. It tells me, am I living in the kingdom of God or am I a fish out of water flopping around in the world? What makes you special is who you are in Christ, your new nature, and that reveals your decisions which end up driving your actions. So your attitude towards yourself ultimately determines this issue. So the first thing is that if I've been given this gift by God, if I, the master has given me this incredible new identity, do I live in it or not? Because if I live in it, that's what brings value. If I don't live in it, that is what devalues. The, the servants did what they did with what they had been given based on the nature of who they were. The first two acted Jewish and the third did not. And that's what's so interesting to me. Now, here's another wrinkle. And if you're a Bible scholar, I'd love for you to think about this and tell me what your, your implications are because there's... there's I've talked to a number of people who've heard this parable many, many, many times. And they say, well, really all this is a parable about your abilities. It's, it's a, this is a parable about the money you've been given by God. Are you a good steward of, of money? This is about your uh, skill sets, right? You have unique skill sets. Now, this is where we're going to go a lot deeper. And I want you to think about this. And so, are we saying that Jesus is saying that you're judged worthless when you don't use the abilities that he's given you. 
Because that doesn't quite square with the whole notion we've been saved by grace through faith, this not a result of works, so that no one can boast it is a free gift of God. And the other fact that you have to consider is Matthew is recording his gospel at the same time that the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts are being played out. And so Matthew, who is an apostle, is at the apostolic convention in Acts chapter 15 where they're talking about, do you have to convert to Judaism and follow the law in order to be a follower of Christ? And what is the first council of the church? What do they say? No, you don't. So that's happening there and he's writing this. I'm starting to get even more confused. So, so what if not only does it mean that, but it also means something deeper. And that means this is that the talent is analogous to the kingdom of God. Now you need to make up your own mind on this one, but you need to think about this. You see, it's not such a stretch because in all the parables, Jesus said the, the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great worth, right? And the guy went and sold everything he had to buy that one pearl. The, he says the kingdom of God is what? Like the treasure in the field. The guy goes and buys a field so he can get the treasure. He says the kingdom of God is considered to be, you know, like the lost coin. So you see this analogous thing happening on occasion. So if that is true, then that means I am held accountable for what I have been given in regards to the kingdom of God, right? the invitation into the kingdom of God. And if I reject that or I have fear over it or I, have, I hide it, that is what makes me worthless. That's a whole new level, isn't it? Think about that. You know, Jesus was all about his kingdom. His death and resurrection was to establish his kingdom here on earth and if you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world exist side by side for a period of time until the final judgment. And these last three parables are all about the final judgment. So that leads me to the next final question of this parable and all the parables. And that is, what is your nature? What is your nature? You see, the first and second servants did what they did out of who they were. The third operated out of fear and not who he was meant to be. And so, I mean, if the talents actually do equate money in today's world, I really hope I'm more like the first servant than the second one. Because 10 million sounds a whole lot better than four or five. But if it means something else, these deeper things, then what it says is that my essence of who I am in Christ can live in only one of two places. It can live in the kingdom with God or it lives in fear. And the fear that I have is the fear of what God wants to do in me. Think about that for a second. The fear that I have is what God really wants to do in me. And so I, I'm just gonna bury that and I'm not gonna pay any attention to it. If you're listening online, this is a critical question for you. Are you really afraid of what God wants to do in your life? If he were to get a hold of you 
Because your fear of God's kingdom and being a part of it and your refusal of his invitation to become a part is what devalues your life. It brings no value to your life. You need to understand that and think about that. Because the kingdom of God is not a, a place of fear. It is a place of what? Possibility. It is a place of new things, not old things. And so that's what it really all comes down to is what is your nature? What these parables do is they are wonderful in that they give us a way to evaluate ourselves and say, wow, based on this, who am I more like? Because that reveals who I think I am and who I think I am comes from whom I believe I am to be. And that's the choice we have. The choice we have is do I believe who I think I am? Do I believe who the world says I am? Or do I believe who God says I am? See, I don't know about you, but I would be reluctant to think I should believe myself because I can talk myself into eating a donut about just any time of the day. I, I could rationalize all kinds of stuff. Do you really want to believe what you think who you are? I certainly don't want to believe what the world tells me I am. I mean, the world's messages are crazy. So that leaves me one choice. I can believe who God says I am. And when I believe that, I think I can honestly say I'm believing the only one who knows the absolute truth because I don't know it, and I guarantee you the world doesn't. What is your nature? All of these parables point out ways to evaluate yourself. What do I really believe, and where am I living? In this world or in his kingdom? Now, one of the things we do at the end of any series is we give a blessing. And this is how a blessing works is... Um, uh, I give it to you, then I say a short prayer, and then we're done. So let's stand for your blessing. People like to, some people will put their hands out, some people, you know, however you feel most comfortable. I just want to share this blessing with you. These are things that I pray over and I ask the Lord. I said, Lord, if you were to say something to people, what if you were to use my mouth to do it, what is it that you would want to say to them? So here's your blessing. In this life, Jesus is calling you to live fully in the kingdom of God. So desire that with all of your heart. Seek it first above all else. Kingdom living is about knowing who you really are. It is a place where you will be set free from the past, not defined by a bad decision, a wrong action, or feelings of regret. Kingdom living is first and foremost about freedom from sin and death. Kingdom living is about courage. It, it's a nature that is free to pursue the possibility of every good thing that I have for you based on my truth, saith the Lord. Kingdom living is about pursuing what can be, not what's lost, not what's failed, but what can be today and what can be tomorrow because faith is about the possibility of God's divine action in your 
life. Therefore, people who live in the kingdom are all about confidence. This place where you know who you are. So stop playing games with yourself. Take God at his word when he tells you who he, who you really are. Believe it and stop trying to talk yourself out of it. No more games. Kingdom living is all about authenticity. No more pretending. No more fake stuff. Shallow, meaningless living, meaningless relationships. Kingdom living is the place where you can be real, the real you, who you are called to be, meant to be, and designed to be by God and him alone. God's kingdom is calling you to live for so much more than you're living for right now. He's calling you towards more confidence, more courage, more joy, more meaning, more purpose, more love. This is life. And God's kingdom is calling you to have it abundantly. Isn't this ultimately what you've been searching for in the deepest recesses of your soul? Because guess what? Now you have found it, the kingdom of God. And he and he alone is inviting you to live in it. Accept his invitation to not only enter into it, but live in it each and every day of your life. Don't miss out on the greatest life in the here and now. Live in the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, it's your promise that we embrace. It is your truth that sets us free. It's your redemption that makes us new. And that is your love that makes life awesome. Amen. God bless you and see you next week.